Today's episode of the Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Calshi. We've talked about a few key events on this show recently, notably the debt ceiling negotiation going on right now. And we've come across a platform that allows you to trade directly on its outcome. Calshi is a federally regulated exchange backed by Sequoia Capital, Y Combinator, Charles Schwab, and other top investors that have invented a new asset class, event contracts. Event contracts allow investors to take yes or no positions on events such as whether the U.S. will default on its debt obligations, whether the Fed will hike rates in June, what Biden's approval rating will be next month, and much more. Calshi's event contracts allow you a chance to profit from being right about where the world is heading in targeted ways and is offering Real Vision listeners $15 when they sign up using the link calshi.com slash realvision right now. Again, that's calshi.com slash realvision to claim your $15 credit now. Is the debt ceiling crisis just a prelude to a much bigger debt blow up? If so, how should you be thinking about risks and opportunities? Hi, everyone. Welcome to this deep dive conversation with legendary investor Jim Rogers. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, Maggie, I'm delighted to see you again. It's been a long time. It certainly has. And we're, we're so happy to have you because I feel like we're at this juncture where a lot of people are trying to look into the future, figure out what's going on. Um, but there are a lot of cross currents. So let's start with what's on your mind as you watch, or we all watch Congress and the president sort of go down to the wire again when it comes to the U.S. debt ceiling. Are you concerned about it? How are you thinking about it? We seem to find ourselves in this situation repeatedly. Maggie, I hope that you have figured out by now we should always be concerned about Washington. They don't have a clue what they're doing uh, and they prove it day in and day out. Of course I'm concerned. I'm more concerned about the fact that we have this gigantic debt. It gets bigger and bigger every day. And instead of talking about a temporary ceiling, they should be talking about what to do because every country in history that's gotten into this situation has had serious problems eventually. And we will too. Yeah. And that that's the I think that's the the overarching concern. And we're starting to hear more conversation about that, certainly not in Washington, but in investment circles. You know, people keep talking about a sovereign debt bubble. Does it feel like we're at a tipping point now? You know, has it become unsustainable? Are we going to start to see fallout from that? No, we're not at a tipping point now. You don't have to worry. Tomorrow afternoon, we're still going to be, we're still here. We're still going to be talking. And to the most part, U.S. would be paying its bills. But, Maggie, you should be extremely worried because if you're not, you don't know what's going on. You need to watch the deep dive because this is this has never happened in history of the world and it's getting worse, not better. Many countries are starting to look for alternatives to the U.S. dollar, partly because of this horrendous debt problem. Are they... Are, is there an alternative now? How is that? I mean, this this is something that's been talked about, but are we are the efforts more serious? Is is there an alternative that is coming around the corner that might be a solution if that's what they want? I'm sure there is, but I don't know what it is yet. I haven't figured it out. The alternative, the obvious alternative, would be the Chinese currency, but the renminbi is not convertible, not completely convertible yet. So you can't have a world's major currency that's not convertible. So I don't know. I'm, but I assure you, Maggie, I'm looking every day because I got to find something because I know that something bad is going to happen in the currency markets in the next two or three years. When you say something bad, what do you think that looks like? What are you concerned about? I mean, conceive, and I'm just, this is not a prediction. This is just saying, you know, if we have a collapse of the U.S. dollar, that means financial markets everywhere are going to collapse, including the American government bond market. Uh, in the past, when the, when the previous currencies lost their status, there were lots of problems along the way. hundred years ago, Britain was the number one currency in the world. It was no number two. But 50 years later, Maggie, and that's not a typo, only 50 years later, Britain went bankrupt. IMF had to bail them out. So... This has happened before, and I hope 
we all live long enough to see it happen many times. Is it possible that this can be, does it have to end in calamity? Do you think this can be unwound in an orderly fashion, This the, dealing with these high level of debts? Well, you should go to Washington. They will love you. They would think, oh my gosh, this is our savior. Um, I have been doing that for a long time, just as the British did. The British un unwound it slowly and softly and badly for several years. Right? And we have been doing it too. It cannot last, well, let's put it this way, Mike. It never has lasted forever. Every country that's had the currency on top has disappeared. The currency has eventually disappeared and lost its status. Maybe it's different this time. It's always a Maybe dangerous can, phrase, isn't it? Uh, it's an extremely dangerous phrase. That's why I used it. So when there is, if we assume that they come to some sort of agreement, which they usually do when it comes to the debt ceiling, and they do seem to be making some progress on talks, uh, the Treasury is going to have to issue a hell of a lot of bonds. I think as somebody estimated yesterday, 500 billion worth of bonds, north of six, north of a trillion in six to 12 months. That's a lot of issuance. Do you think there are enough buyers for U.S. Treasury bonds in this environment? Oh, yeah, they'll buy them themselves. That's what they do. You know, they get other parts of the government to buy them, you know, and they fool you and me and everybody else. And they fool themselves because this is, it cannot be sustainable forever. So you think that if you had a situation where there weren't enough natural buyers, because some people are one, worried that maybe the interest rate's going to have to go higher. We're focused on kind of inflation and Fed policy, but but that the 10-year interest rate will have to go a lot higher to attract buyers. Sounds like you think well, if, if before that happens, they just buy, the government buys it buys them themselves again, some sort of QA. I know that the government will step in and buy it themselves if and when it happens. Um, I also know that interest rates are going to go higher worldwide. You know, they were recently the lowest they'd been in recorded history. I'll repeat, the lowest in recorded history. So interest rates are certainly going to go higher over the foreseeable future. What is that in that environment, in a higher interest rate environment, where do you see trouble and, and who's best situated to cope with that? Well, there'll be trouble in all the markets, um, property markets, stock markets, bond markets, currency markets, everything, because Maggie, you're not old enough to remember, but in 1980 or 1979, when we had our last huge inflationary spiral, interest rates on short-term government treasury bills, interest rates on treasury bills were over 21%. That's not a typo, over 21% because the situation was out of control and we had to do something. We did, it killed inflation, but it didn't, it wasn't a lot of fun for a lot of people. Is but that that's even what's a policy option this time around? Can they even do that given the debt everyone's carrying? It won't, it won't, we're not able to get to 20, 21% now. But if we get up to nine or 10 or 13, you pick the number, the whole thing starts collapsing. No, we can't get to 21% again unless it's in a panic because the, mar the US market cannot handle it, but other markets cannot handle it either. Mm. What, but, um, but Maggie, wait, I want to say something. Mm -hmm. Good news for you because it ensures job security for you. Somebody has to record all this. So <laughs> it's wonderful for you. It's horrible for us. I'm not sure it's that's, wonderful. yeah, I'm not sure that gives me any comfort, Jim, at all. Yeah, I just want case. to remind you, it's good for Maggie. What, um, so what are, you, what are you expecting for inflation? Because we have a very divided camp on that. You know, we have some people who really believe that we're in a structurally higher inflation environment. And we have other people who think there are forces that are going to come back in Demand will fall, that will pull inflation down. And then you have some sort of, you know, technology that's also going to help on that, boost productivity at the same time. So they don't see inflation as, as sticky as others. Where do you well, fall? We should, demand will certainly fall if you have interest rates going higher and higher and higher. Uh, that's, that's a given. But I don't know how high they have to go to kill inflation this time around. 
has been staggering amounts of money printing in the last few years. No, nothing is, the world has never seen the debt and the spending and the money printing like in the last few years. So it's something is going to have to be very, very ruinous to solve this problem this time. I have no idea how high, watch the deep dive, but it's going to be a big, big, big problem before this is over. You're gonna have financial markets collapse. I guess it's been a long time since we had a big, big, serious bear market in the world. In fact, in the U.S., it's been the longest in recorded history. So, no, we're going to have some big problems before this is over. But I remind you, we've always had periodic bear markets. It's not as though this has never happened before. Yeah, they've sort of been, um, they've been managed, though, haven't they, in the last few years? So if that's coming from, from an investment point of view, especially because you've lived through them, how do you how do you manage that risk? How are you how are you wrapping your head around that? Well, I hope everybody's very worried. I hope everybody's scared. I hope everybody's watching the deep dive to figure out what to do about all this. Historically, bear markets when they come, they, nearly everything, nearly all assets go down a lot. So if you don't know how to sell short. Everybody should learn how to sell short and or should learn how to put their money in cash. But Maggie, when I say cash, what cash? Yeah. U.S. dollars, you know, euro, what, what cash? Because you could be ruined if you have your money in the wrong cash. So you have to learn about cash and or selling short in order to survive what's coming with the bear market. But again, this is, this is basic freshman economics, freshman stock market economics. That's how you survive. Yeah, but you have a, you have you have a generation of people that have been kind of programmed to buy the dip, put their money in equities. You know, it's it's um, it's not an environment that many investors have lived through. Well, it's a sign that I can. One of the signs that happens at the end of bull markets. You have all these new investors that suddenly hear about this wonderful new thing called the stock market, and it's fun, and you can make money. And it's easy. Oh, it's easy. So they all come pouring in, and it's happening now, as you probably noticed. And it's another sign that we're getting closer to the bear market. So when you when you say what cash, and you're so bearish on the dollar, uh, how are you how are you thinking about that? I mean, are you diversified in in other? Are you holding assets in other currencies? How are you, how do you if you need cash, but you're bearish the U.S. dollar, how do you express that? Well, I am mainly long the U.S. dollar at the moment because in times of chaos, people look for a safe haven. And most people think for historic reasons that the U.S. dollar is a safe haven. It's not with the largest debtor nation in the history of the world, but most people, when they think of a safe haven, they think of a U.S. dollar. I'm there. I hope that I'm smart enough if and when the gigantic panic comes, the dollar will have a big rally, and I hope I'm smart enough, if it happens that way, to sell. Now, your next question, and you've already asked me is, where do you put the money then? Maggie, that's an extremely good question, and I don't have an answer at the moment. Yeah, that, that's what makes, I think, this a, a, a difficult environment. So you're, you're sitting in Singapore. You've long, um, I think we were reminiscing when I saw you in New York many years ago. I think you were just about to make the move to Asia. From looking at the world from that region, what's underappreciated? Well, I think what's underappreciated in the U.S. is the, the, the strength of Asia. You know, Asia has millions of people, and most of them are reasonably well financed, reasonably well capitalized. I mean, the largest debtor nations in the world are in the West, unfortunately, um, and most of the Asian nations are somewhat better si situated than we are. And uh, unfortunately, that's not recognized in the U.S. But again, I don't have an answer. Uh, one could put your money in Japan or China or Singapore or many places where one could put one's money, but I can see problems with all of the above and others as well. Yeah, it sounds like it, 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 when that you're you're worried about a crisis coming, but it sounds like you don't think any place 
we'll be able to outperform or, or remain unscathed if we have this sort of dislocation in global markets? I know we're going to have it. I don't know where to put my money yet. Somebody is going to be okay. North Korea, Maggie. North Korea is going to be okay. But so what? You know, they're not going to collapse because nobody will lend them money. Nobody will take their money, including me. Yeah. But I, I don't know where to put my money at the moment. Have you, as have far you as ever, the country is concerned. Have you ever been in a position where you, where you felt like that before? Most of my life. <laughs> Nearly my entire uh, life, not and even before my investing career. <laughs> I wish it were simple. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all this were easy? Yeah. Never been easy for me. Maybe it's been easy for you, Maggie, but it's never been easy for me. And yet you managed to you managed to make some good calls and you know you you shifted things around. You've always been looking at emerging markets. It sounds like you're you're sort of more concerned now than you've been in the past. Well, I'm certainly more, I know we're going to have the largest bear market, the biggest bear market in my lifetime. 2008, we had a big bear market because of too much debt. Mm. Maggie, look out the window. Since 2008, the debt everywhere has skyrocketed, gigantic increases in debt. So I think it's a simple statement that the next bear market will be the worst in my lifetime because the debt has gone up by such staggering amounts in the past 14 years. Mm. But you're not sure where the opportunity is in that dislocation because that's the the, the general. Even in in 2008, you know there there were some people who made out very well. They were on the right side of certain bets, and there was opportunity. Well, I hope I'm smart enough to sell short when the time comes. I hope I'm smart enough to sell short the right things. Mm. But that's a fine. That's great. Wonderful. Hooray! But then what do I do? You got to cover those shorts somewhere along the line. And then where do you put your money? I don't see the U.S. dollar. It might be. The U.S. dollar may have a while longer. But I can certainly see after the next collapse, more and more people are going to be very skeptical of the U.S. dollar. I mean, Washington is driving people away from the U.S. dollar by saying, you know, if we don't like you, we'll put sanctions on you. Many people in the world now, or even our friends, say, well, wait a minute, that's not the way it's supposed to be. The reserve currency, the international currency is supposed to be neutral. Anybody can use it for anything. <laughs> but now the U.S. and the U.S. gets angry at you, they say, no, we won't let you use our money. We'll take it away from you. And that is making many, including our friends, look for an alternative. Yeah. So I'm looking for an alternative too. I have to. Are you looking at all in um in at crypto or anything blockchain related or digital assets? Do you think that's an alternative? Well, blockchain and crypto are two different things. Uh, right. I have not bought nor sold crypto. Uh, many people have done so and traded it profitably. Uh, it's been wonderful. But as far as the currency concerned. I don't, and that many countries are working on uh, electronic currency, cryptocurrency, call it computer money, call it what you will. And we're going to have it. The world's going to have it uh, eventually. But I, I don't see the U.S., for instance, since we're both U.S., I don't see the U.S. when they say, okay, this is money now. I don't see you. I don't see Washington saying, saying, but if you want to use that money over there, you use that money over there. We don't care. That's fine with us. That's not the way bureaucrats and governments think and work. Mm. So whatever the currency is going to be, it's going to be government currency somewhere. If it were today, it would be U.S. dollars out of Washington. Uh, but who knows what it'll be in a few years. I don't think that the world is going to... Con convert to Bitcoin. It will be computer money, but it will be government computer money. Uh, so what's your outlook for the Chinese economy? What's happening in China? Well, China closed off for their virus, uh, closed down pretty harshly, uh, strongly. Um, they've opened up, and so things are getting better there. Uh, a problem of that, of course, is many of their neighbors are, have, have opened up too, but they cannot be as nearly as strong as China would like them. 
China is getting better. I expect China to continue to get better. I own Chinese shares. If I find some more, I'll buy more of them. But the whole world, you know, it's been 14 years since we had a big bear market in the U.S., and that's the bellwether. So it's been a while, and we're going to have more problems in the next year or two, which means China will too. Mm. How do you feel? And China has debt now. By the way, China did not have debt 15, 20 years ago. Very little debt. But now even China has a lot of debt too. And both China and the U.S. are both struggling with real estate problems. You know, in the U.S., we see the commercial real estate issue that a lot of people think is still going to unfold. We haven't seen the worst of it yet. And China has its own real estate issues. Oh, my gosh, yes. China had a wild property bubble that they tried to do something about for a long time. They couldn't control it, didn't control it, but now it's controlling itself. Or maybe the government is good. Somebody is controlling it finally. And it's beginning to pop. So yes, China's got certainly got problems, even though their problems are probably less bad than some other countries. So you think they're in a better situation, perhaps, than the U.S.? Can they support global growth, or is this going to be a slower growth China? That's more. Are, I would say they're less bad. I won't say they're better, because they have, as we just discussed, problems. And if their neighbor, if their customers. If the countries they trade with have problems, that means they are not as wildly prosperous as they would like to be. No, I certainly see China having problems because the world's going to have problems. I mean, Japan may be less problematical than most other countries now just because they had such a huge disaster so long ago, but everybody's going to have problems. There, I, we have a question um, from Poal. Do you think we've already entered the commodity super cycle? How are you thinking about commodities? Well, throughout history, uh, when everybody's printing money or whenever, whenever people are stimulating the economy, it leads to, it has always led to inflation. It has again, it will lead to more inflation. And the best place to be when you have inflation is real assets, and real assets are commodities. I mean, I own some silver right here. I'll buy more if it goes down more, and gold and other things as well. But, you know, bonds have are in a bubble and have been in a bubble for a while. We've never had such expensive bonds in the history of the world. Property in many places, Korea, New Zealand, many places are certainly a bubble parts of China and stocks have been bubblish, if not bubbles, and it depends on the country. So the cheapest asset that I know is still commodities. I mean, silver is down 60% from its all-time high. Those are not bubble numbers, Maggie, when something's down 60% from its all-time high. So are you, are, do you own the physical commodity? Is that how you like that or, or ETFs acceptable? <laughs> That's real you're silver. Gonna, you're going to need suitcases to carry all those coins around. But you, you like the commodity. Can, the physical. You never can tell when you need a little silver in your pocket, Mackie. So, yes, I do have some. I have some various places. Yes. Uh, but you can buy futures. Many ways to invest in commodities. Futures, stocks. It depends. I mean, it, what's, it depends on what you are best at. Mm. If, if we are in this situation where things are going to crater, though, doesn't, doesn't demand, so you're not talking, are you talking all commodities or, or precious metals? Because if demand craters, doesn't that hurt some other commodities like energy? Historically, when demand, when you have a crater, everything goes down, including gold and silver, at least for a while. So no, yes, you're exactly right. But when people look around and they see everything collapse, they say, oh, I better buy some silver, better buy some gold. And that's one of the first things that people then revert to. And whether it's cotton or depends, whatever it happens to be, natural gas, people then usually, one of the first things they turn to are real assets, commodities. Uh, but you're, you're price sensitive because you said you have some, and if the price goes down, you'll buy some some more. Well, I hope so. I hope I'm smart enough, you know. But Maggie, you want to hear about my mistakes? I made many mistakes in my life. You want to hear about my first wife? 
Oh my God, what a mistake that was. Wait, I'm, I'm, I know I'm good at mistakes. For my life of four trades, Jim. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I, we, we like to hear about the mistakes as well. Yeah. Um, the trading ones are probably better for this show though, right? But you're being very honest saying you don't know what to do. I mean, usually, you know, we we expect people to roll up with a with a firm plan, but you you sound like you're being very honest that you're just not sure how this is gonna play out. Well, I own various assets. You see my silver. I can show you gold if you want to see it. I own various and sundry commodities, real assets, agriculture's agriculture has been a disaster for years. And usually if you buy a disaster, you will things turn out okay. Uh, I do not own Russian and Ukrainian shares. I, I, I'd like, I mean, I, you cannot, I cannot buy them now. I'm an American. But normally, if you buy something during a war, you make a lot of money down the road. I mean, but, uh, but fortunately or unfortunately, I'm an American, so I cannot buy Ukraine shares right now, Russian shares. But buying during wartime has often been a smart thing to do. So when you're talking about food commodities, um, again, how are you, what does that look like when you're, when you hold it in your portfolio? Are you, are you some, a lot of people, when we get questions, look at DBA or an ETF, a, a food basket of, of equities. Well, or is that what you're looking at? Or are you more the futures, the commodity? Many studies have shown that for most investors, most of the time buying an index is the best way. Index investing outperforms most active manager year after. It's a bad statement about us, about our, our profession, but it happens to be true. So I, I too, partly because I'm lazy and partly because I know it's a good way to do it, I invest in ETFs or indexes. Let's put it that way. Mm. When you're looking at things like food commodity, Jim, what's your time horizon? Like, are you making a longer bet on this as opposed to? six months, a year? What's your what, what's the sort of time horizon you use? Yeah, I always hope that everything I buy, I can own forever because I'm lazy. I know selling is hard, it's hard work. So I hope that I can own it for a long time. And the way I see the, the future of commodities in 2023, we should, when we have the bull market, it should probably last for a fairly long time because of many things that have been happening in the world. So yes, uh, ideally I'll own the commodities the rest of my life. Uh, that's, I'll that take way. that as long-term, Jim. <laughs> I hope that's very long-term. But the silver, I hope my children own my silver someday. And my gold, I hope that someday they say, he must have been smart. Look at all this silver we have. Thanks, We're Dad. Rich. <laughs> so yes, Jordan, I hope so. A question from Jordan who says, love you, Jim. How does a mid 30 year old invest and create cash flow uh, from the Rogers become a farmer invest in farmland theme when the big boys keep buying up all the farmland? Well, you said a couple of interesting things. One, the big boys keep buying it up. So normally if you put your money where the big boys are going to be, you'll probably come out okay, come out ahead. Yes, I mean, there's some very big boys that are huge owners of agriculture around the world. But there's a lot of agriculture. I don't know the, the questioner. I don't know who you are or much about you, but there are many places you can buy agriculture land in the US, Canada, many, Argentina, the world is full of agriculture land if you are diligent enough to find it and pursue it. But I don't know where you live. I don't know anything about you. Yeah, I can tell you. Go to Siberia and buy farmland. That's not practical for many, many of us, including me right now. Yeah. We, uh, a while back we had, I'll have to dig that up and maybe we'll put the link in for everyone listening. We, there are a couple of companies who are doing things like fractional farm, farmland because of the difficulty in trying to secure it on your own. Um, we'll have to, we'll have to dig that up and rerun that, um, Jordan, I'll, we'll, we'll put it in the link, uh, for you. Um, so Ralph asking, do you have any thoughts about the U S and Singapore's relationship with China? Well, two entirely different questions, and locations, et cetera. Yes. I mean, the population of Singapore is like 75% Chinese ethnic group ethnic group, not 
uh, passports. Um, so yes, and if you look at a globe, you see that China's not far away. But, you know, the American Navy is here too. And China knows the American Navy is here. So that colors any relationship that Singapore has with anybody. But Singapore and China get along famously. They're great pals, great friends. They have been for a few decades, and that is continuing. If there's a war in Asia, I mean, if America and Taiwan, if America and China go to war over Taiwan, oh my gosh, look at your globe. This is not a good place to be. This is the most important port in the world, in the world, especially in an Asian war. But at the moment, anyway, Asia, I mean, sorry, China and Singapore are pals. They get along with each other. They do a lot of things together. Lots of Chinese invest in Singapore and vice versa, including me. So at the moment, that situation, that relationship is good. If we, there's no war over Taiwan, China loves Singapore and vice versa. And I hope that would continue. Uh, America loves Singapore. I've said American Navy. <laughs> go, go to the port, you'll see the American Navy. So. America and China get along extremely well too. America, the Chinese Air Force trains in America. So we, we like each other. But if there's a war, Maggie, if there's a war in Asia, all bets are all off. All bets are off. Yeah, yep. well said, well said. <laughs> uh, Sebastian asking, I'm jumping around here because we have a lot of different questions on different topics. Um, Sebastian asking your thoughts about renewable energy, specifically mm -hmm. companies providing services and materials for renewables. Well, Sebastian, yes, we all want renewable energy. Uh, we all want clean air. I mean, I don't know anybody who's saying, hey, let's have more dirty air, let's have more dirty water, et cetera. So no, it's got a great future. And if you can find companies or processes that are economically efficient and economically competitive, I would suggest you probably should put a lot of money there because the world is going to have solar, wind, whatever kind of clean energy you can come up with as long as it's efficient and competitive. A lot of it is not. A lot of it has to be, it survives only by uh, subsidies. So be sure that if you get involved, you get involved with people that are efficient on their own and competitive on their own. Great point. Uh, is there? Do you look at that regionally or is, as a sector? Are there places in the world where you like the renewable energy trade better? Well, the Chinese seem to be better at solar energy than the rest of us, from what I read anyway. The Chinese seem to be better at most of this, from what I read. Uh, we have it, but we it's usually subsidized. Uh, I mean, nuclear power is unbelievably efficient and cheap and clean if it's done right. If you don't do it right, Maggie, it's not very clean. You're all going to die. But uh, there are other, uh, the French are very good at nuclear power. The Chinese are very good at nuclear power. We are, but we, 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 we discourage it. But nuclear power has a great future, as does wind power and solar power. So, um, Sandeep asking, what are your views on investing in countries in South Asia? Well, most countries in South Asia have stock markets, so it's fairly simple. If you know what you're doing, if you find the right companies and the right shares, it's fairly simple. Um, even Cambodia, which is small, has a stock market. So just about any country, but then of course you can certainly do direct investing in nearly every country. You can make investments on the ground in Korea. You can make investments on the ground in North Korea. Some people, not, not Americans, but some people can. So there are plenty of ways to invest in, in Asia. Asia is a place with billions of people uh, and doesn't have nearly as much debt as the West, for instance. Yeah, I did an event uh, a few months back with some of the heads of exchanges in Asia, and they were all really keen to point out that this is not uh, the Asian Pacific region, not what it was during the past crises, that a lot has changed uh, in terms of the region. Do, do you agree with that? 
Kippur, not Minu. Vietnam had a war. Now they've got a stock exchange. Now many of them are investing in the stock exchange. That's Cambodia, as I said, most of these countries, I, if I thought about it, I cannot think of one that doesn't have a stock exchange. If, uh, if there is, there are only one or two. So no, the Asians, the Asians have been great capitalists for centuries and it's happening again. Michael asking, do you believe that chip embargo and technology transfer restrictions on China will handicap China enough for the U.S. to win the AI race? Well, Michael, what the effect that I see sitting here in Asia is we're forcing the China, the Chinese to get competitive. We're forcing the Chinese to develop their own industry. So in a few years, somebody's going to say, how did the Chinese get to be so good at this? Well, call Washington, because they're forcing the Chinese to get so good at it but other people as well. And I'm not the only person who sees what's happening. The Koreans see, everybody sees what's happening. And so they're all rushing to develop their own further or to get involved with the Chinese as the Chinese are forced by us to become more competitive. Mm, yeah, that's a great point. We have a, a, a question about uh, any graphene companies catch your interest lately. I haven't heard. It's a very specific question. Is that something that you're following? Well, I own some graphene companies. Graphene, the, the, the scientists say graphene has a gigantic future. And from what I can gather, it does. I own a Canadian graphene, graphite company, graphite, graphene company. Uh, I, I own a Korean graphene company. Uh, so yes, yes, no, I'm aware of what's going on. I don't have big investment, uh, but graphene, from what I'm told, some there are some scientists who say that graphene is going to be bigger than the internet eventually. I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but it does, what I can gather, it has a huge future. Hmm, interesting, okay, great question, Jordan. We'll follow up on that uh, in another, you know, in a when we, when we take a look at um, materials and, and uh, rare earth metals. Um, so this is a great uh, question from Ralph. If you were able to give your 18 year old self advice about investing, what would he say? <laughs> oh, my 18 year old, they really what didn't was know your, what, what was, was the 18 year old Jim Rogers like anyway? 18 year old Jim Rogers knew very little. Everything I thought when I was 18 was wrong. You know, I was going to go to medical school. I, I, there's nothing that I was right about when I was 18, including my girlfriend. Nothing. Uh, the only thing that I did right was go to college. And, the, and I went to a college, which turned out to be wonderful. Uh, but I knew nothing about investing. I learned about all of this and fell in love with investing. And so if I were speaking to my 18-year-old self now, I would say, forget all your talk about medical school or law school and that stuff. Start learning about stocks and bonds and investing because that's what you're going to love. I didn't know any of that when I was 18, but I would have said to myself, learn about investing. And I would have said, learn about China. I would have said, learn Chinese and learn about the stock market mm. when yeah, I was 18. At, at that point, um, you you would have not found many people who were taking Mandarin in high school or any of that. I mean, that was just not not on no, the radar. No, I mean, if I had gone to China when I was eighteen, Mao Zedong probably would have shot me. <laughs> you know, I, Americans were not popular uh, when I was eighteen in China or in much of Asia. But if I had been really, really smart, I guess I would have gone to Taiwan or somewhere and learned Mandarin. How, not very smart. So how did you fall in love with investing? Where did that happen? Was it at college or was it afterwards when you took a job? I, I got a summer job because I liked the guy and he liked me. I knew nothing about, I knew Wall Street was in New York somewhere. I knew something bad had happened in 1929. I thought stocks and bonds were the same thing. I knew nothing about Wall Street. But when I got there, I fell in love because this was the place they would pay me and pay me a lot to know what was happening in the world. And I then realized, oh my gosh, that's what I love. I didn't know anything when I was 21. 
Still don't know that much, but I knew even less when I was 21, much less 18. That's amazing. Saul is asking a sort of similar type of question. I've noticed your economic perspective often diverged from Soros's Keynesian views. A key component of sex, successful trading is recognizing when you're wrong. Did you find that your difference in ideology allowed you to more easily question your framework and trading ideas? Well, I, I don't know much about Mr. Soros. I haven't seen Mr. Soros or contact, had any contact with for 43 years. So you might as well ask me about my first wife. <laughs> I mean, I, not that I know much about my first wife either. I, I, I she's getting a lot you. of airtime in this interview, though. Maybe, <laughs> maybe she's listening. No, but but I think. Well, if, aside from Soros, I think he, he's really asking, how is it? Is there? Is, how is it that you were able to kind of constantly challenge your framework or, or trading ideas? How did you well, manage to? The market, to the market does. The market does me does it for me, Maggie. I can't, you know, if I buy X and it goes down, the market says, hey, you better wake up and figure this out. You've got a problem on your hands, whether it's a long or a short. So the market is constantly challenging in me and everybody else. I'm not, the market is not just picking on me. The market is picking on everybody. It's, a, it's one of the great beauties of investing is the market every five minutes, the market challenges you. And that's I'm forced to think about my positions all the time by the market. How are you feeling about uh, American tech stocks right now? I know that you in the in the not too you know earlier this year were were negative. I saw some negative comments, um, and yet they they've rallied. I mean, we see Microsoft, Nvidia, they're on fire. How you how do you feel about those stocks? Well, I am neither long nor short. If if they're on fire, I obviously wish I were long. Um, but I, for them, usually, Maggie, I, I, I have learned in my life, unless I really understand something, I should not invest in it. And my 15-year-old daughter knows more about technology than I do. So you stay away from technology, not because most, of valuation, just because you're not sure that you don't fully understand, sort of Warren Buffett-esque, you don't really understand it, so you're not going to be in it. For the most part. I mean, I periodically sell them short. When I see the mad hysteria taking place, but that's it's been a long time since I was short that stuff. But I will be again. I hope. I hope I'm smart enough to do it again. Paul is asking your philosophy or approach to diversification. Well, Paul, I have learned that diversification is basically something that brokers came up with to cover themselves. You know, if you if they diversify your portfolio, you're not going. You can't. You can try to sue them but you're not going to get away with it. But diversification is not a way to get rich. If you want to get rich, you need to constantly, you need to put all your eggs in one basket. You better be sure it's the right basket, Paul, and you better look at that basket very, very, keep an eye on that basket very, very carefully. But the way to make a lot of money is to focus and concentrate, not to diversify. That's amazing because it's completely contrary to what most people say. Well, of course it is. You want to get rich or not? <laughs> you want to be on television or you want to be a good television anchor and tell everybody you better diversify or you want. I mean, Mr. Ford never diversified. You know, Mr. Watson never diversified. They put all their money in one basket because they knew they had the right basket. Bill Gates didn't diversify. I mean, now he diversifies, but these guys didn't diversify. They had everything in the same garage. And we're watching, they went in that garage every day and watched it very, very carefully. That's how you get rich. Diversification is not going to make you rich. Uh, I'm glad you said that that's not the conventional wisdom. The conventional <laughs> wisdom is not going to make you rich either, Maggie, whatever it is. <laughs> Which is something you've always been good at pointing out, Jim. Uh, another specific question, and we're going to wrap it up soon, but another specific question. Mike is asking, does Jim think Japan has a great growth opportunity now that the U.S. is de-risking away from China, noting that Micron Technology is going to invest up to 50 billion, 500 rather, billion yen in Japan to make DRAM chips? 
So does, is Japan the beneficiary of the chip tension between the Japan U.S. and China? A, a lot of things going forward right now. Uh, but, and I own Japanese ETFs, but remember, Japan's not going to be here in 50 years unless something dramatic happens. The population has been declining since 2010, continues to decline. They're not having babies. They don't like immigrants. So, I mean, I love Japan. It's one of my favorite countries in the world. But the facts are the debt goes up every day and the population goes down every day. So, and the, the debt is very, very high. So I own Japanese uh, ETFs at the moment. The central bank is buying Japanese ETFs. Maggie, the central bank has more money than I do. So if they're buying ETFs, I'm going to buy the ETFs. But, you know, and the Japanese market is still down 30% from its all-time high. So it's not an overexploited bubble. But be worried if you're there for the long... If I were a 10-year-old Japanese, I would move. I would certainly move away. Because when that 10-year-old is 50, oh, my God, what's there going to be left? unless something changes very much. But I love it right now, and I do have investments there. Jim, how often do you rebalance or look at your holdings? So you make bets, you're not really worried about being diversified, but you're clearly paying a lot of attention to market pricing and market dynamics. And even if you're long-term, have a feeling about something like the dollar, short-term, you're, you're willing to ride it higher. Or how often do you, do you make adjustments? Every hour and a half, always, you know, don't have, well, I, I mean, I look at markets. That's what I do all the time. You know, I don't sit around watching baseball games. Uh, I, I used to, but I don't anymore. I live in Asia, not much baseball here. Um, no, I, I love the markets and the markets are all pervasive. When you walk down the street in just about any country in the world, the market is having an effect. You know, I own shares in Uzbekistan right now. Uh, I haven't been there recently, but I want to head up there because I think I see changes taking place in Uzbekistan. And that, to me, is more exciting than the NBA. The NBA is wonderful. I'm not knocking the NBA. I'm just saying that what's happening in Uzbekistan is more exciting than the NBA to me. So you, you just mentioned that. Let's end on what's your what's one of your favorite trades right now and what's one of your least favorite, something that you're really staying well, away from. I want you to go back to what you, the premise that you have, and it's, you know, it's your show, and it obviously works, but I don't particularly like the idea of saying I have to give you three investments. And the reason I say that, Maggie, is I have learned in my life if you see somebody on TV and she says, buy X, a lot of people go buy it. They have yeah. no idea what it is or why they buy it. And of course, it's a disaster for them because if it goes up, they don't know what to do. And if it goes down, they don't know what to do. So I am not an advocate of naming too many naming names because I know the effect it can have. I was once on a show. And I said, gosh, we were discussing that some short Mexico fund that we went on and on about. And Mexico demanded two weeks later collapse. It was a gigantic success. Uh, but we were talking about it on the show two weeks later. Some viewer called up screaming. He said, that goddamn Jim Rogers, I bought Mexico fund because I saw him talking about it. And my, my partner looked up stunned as did I. I said, sir, Mr. Rogers was short. Mexico. He said it was going to collapse. Turn the volume up. <laughs> no, that's I, what happens. That's yeah, what no, happens. The point is absolutely right because we we try not to give, well, in, in that particular show we did, but we try to always say that you don't know people's risk. You don't know their time frame. You don't know. Only they can know that. So let's let's well, let's revise the question. Not your favorites. Maybe um, what okay, advice I'm, would you give when you're I'm looking at this? You I'm going to give you three, even though I ah, vigorously okay. disagree. And think With a caveat that these may not be for everyone. But what do you like? I'm just going to say that's a crazy thing to do. You know, this woman, Maggie, is smart and, and wonderful. But, you know, she has this, well, Uzbekistan. Uh, Uzbekistan was a communist, one of the Soviet 
disasters it was ruined, but the recent guys, I mean, they're huge natural resources in Uzbekistan, and it's in a very good location near China, near India and other places with gigantic natural resources. And the government is currently in the process of running the country the way you and I would. I own a fund in Uzbekistan, uh, but Japan, uh, I mentioned Japan before, it's still down 30% from its all-time high, but the Japanese ETF, I mean, the Japanese central bank is buying indexes. Well, for most people, I say stay away from central banks and they're useless. But the Japanese central bank has a lot of money, so I own Japanese ETFs. They're easy to find, they're easy to buy, and they're very, very liquid. Uh, let's see, what's the other? Oh, I was going to tell you that I own a commodity index. Uh, I said before that index investing is study show is best for most people. I'm optimistic about commodities, as we said before. So I, for better or for worse, own a commodity index. If you're really good at commodities, you might buy soybean futures. Who knows what you might do if you're really good at it. But for mo most simple, lazy people like me, index investing is the best way. Yeah. Thank you for that. And we're going to say the caveat that we now know that Jim watches the markets every hour. So if we talk to you an hour from now, those may not be your trades. <laughs> I watch the world. I do watch the world. I don't necessarily watch. All right. You watch the world. But but this is um, just some thoughts from you, not investment advice or recommendations. So no angry viewers calling in. Well, you can be angry, but I'm telling you right now, do not do what I do. Stay with what if you want to be successful. If you want them to call you, if you want Maggie to call you someday, stay with what you know. You'll be very successful. And someday Maggie will call you up and say, please come on my show. You know, we, I, we know you're a very successful investor. And how do you do it? And you will say, oh, Maggie, it's simple. I just stay with what I know. Some really wise person told me that a while ago. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. So do it. Jim, fantastic. Listen, it has been such a delight to catch up with you. We really all um, have so much respect for your long history um, and your generosity with your wisdom and your experience. So we appreciate you spending this time with us. I want to remind you I make many mistakes. I'll remind you again of my first wife. But I, many, I make, make all kinds of mistakes. So but you make a lot of good decisions too. <laughs> every once in a while I get it right, yes. Awesome. Jim, thank, thank you so much. We appreciate you being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Maggie. Let's do it again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks to all of you for the great questions. As always, take care and good luck out there. This episode of the Real Vision Daily Briefing was sponsored by Calshi. Calshi allows investors a chance to profit from being right about the outcome of events. Sign up at calshi.com slash realvision now to claim $15 towards your first event contract today.